0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is the Daily 202 for Tuesday, June 9th. In today's news 14 states report new record high coronavirus infections. The Trump administration makes it easier for hunters to kill hibernating bear cubs and slaughter wolf pups in national parks. And the U.S. economy slipped into a recession back in February before any of the stay at home orders. But first, the big idea. Some Black Lives Matter protesters have called on lawmakers to defund the police. President Trump is eager to use this as a wedge issue to gin up his base. So nervous national Democrats moved to distance themselves from that slogan on Monday, including Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. Congressional Democrats unveiled a nearly 200-page draft piece of legislation called the Justice in Policing Act, It would ban chokeholds, establish a national database to track police misconduct, and prohibit certain no-knock warrants. While the police reform bill is likely to pass the Democratic-controlled House in short order, its fate in the GOP-led Senate is far less certain. The bill would ban racial profiling in law enforcement, mandate additional training, and require the use of body cameras for all federal officers. It would also change immunity standards, making it easier to sue police officers for misconduct. The White House said Trump will veto any bill that does that. Biden told CBS News in an interview after meeting with George Floyd's family in Houston that while he does not support defunding police departments, he favors conditioning federal aid to law enforcement on whether or not they meet certain basic standards of, as he put it, decency and honorableness. Not defunding departments does not mean real reform can't still happen. The French interior minister announced overnight That French police will no longer be allowed to use chokeholds, starting today. That is a concession after days of demonstrations in Paris in which tens of thousands marched. Now, America faces real systemic challenges on this front, and it's bigger than chokeholds, and it's bigger than George Floyd. According to a Washington Post tally that we have been keeping since 2015, police in our country have shot and killed 5,400 civilians in the last five years. Even amid the coronavirus pandemic and orders that kept millions at home for weeks, police shot and killed 463 people through the first week of June, 49 more than during the same period last year. In May, police shot and killed 110 people, the most in any single month since the Post began tracking such incidents. We started tracking them because no one else was doing it. The ex-Minneapolis cop who's been charged with Floyd's murder after he kneeled on his neck for almost nine minutes is being held on bail for $1.25 million. Derek Chauvin said little during his first court appearance. Overnight, we got more evidence of the problematic culture of law enforcement in America. A newly released video shows a New Jersey trooper fatally shooting an unarmed 28-year-old black man during a traffic stop. In Minnesota, state troopers confessed yesterday afternoon that they slashed the tires of cars belonging to protesters and journalists on two separate nights during the recent unrest. They only admitted to it after Mother Jones published videos and photos of officers in military-style uniforms Puncturing tires with knives. Among the vehicle owners whose tires were damaged was a Star Tribune reporter. Law enforcement says no one will be disciplined for this misconduct. D.C. City Council is scheduled to vote this week on its own sweeping package of police reform. The bill here in the district includes a prohibition on neck restraints, which are already banned by D.C. police policy, but not by law as well as a requirement that police make public the name of any officer involved in a serious use of force incident and the footage from the officer's body camera within 72 hours. Council Chairman Phil Mendelson plans to offer some amendments to the bill, including banning the hiring of any officer with a record of misconduct in other jurisdictions and removing officer discipline as a matter subject to police contract negotiations. It shouldn't be up for debate. Virginia also faces its own reckoning. Liberty University President Jerry Falwell Jr. tweeted imagery with blackface and Ku Klux Klan pictures. This has spurred staff resignations at Liberty and demands for his firing by influential alumni. So far, Falwell standing firm. And a self-identified Klan leader was arrested after driving through peaceful protesters in Richmond late Sunday night. Harry Rogers, 36 years old, has been charged with assault and battery and is being held without bond. Thankfully, there were no fatalities reported as a result of that incident. And a Richmond judge last night temporarily blocked Governor Ralph Northam from removing that statue of Robert E. Lee that towers above what was once the capital of the Confederacy. The judge granted a 10-day injunction, sought by William Gregory, who contends in a lawsuit that the state promised to, quote, affectionately protect the Lee statue— when it annexed the land it now stands on from the county more than 100 years ago. But, reversing course, the U.S. Army announced last night that it will now consider renaming 10 bases that are named after Confederate leaders. An Army spokesman said Defense Secretary Mark Esper supports the decision. And in Alabama, the heart of the Deep South, the University of Alabama has begun taking down monuments two Confederate soldiers. So change can come. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, 14 states and Puerto Rico hit their highest seven-day averages for new coronavirus infections as rates of infections ease in places like New York and Chicago, and one-time hotspots move into new phases of reopening. Parts of our country that had previously avoided being hit hard by the contagion are now tallying record-high new infections. Since the start of June, these are the states that have recorded their highest-ever averages of new cases. Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Florida, Kentucky... New Mexico, North Carolina, Mississippi, Oregon, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Utah. If the pandemic's first wave burned through dense metro hubs like New York City and Detroit, the highest percentages of the new case are coming from places with much smaller population. For example, Lincoln County, Oregon, an area of less than 50,000 people, has averaged 20 new cases every day for the last seven days. The Bear River Health District in northern Utah Has averaged 78 new cases a day in the past week, most of them tied to an outbreak at a meat processing plant. The increase of coronavirus cases in counties with fewer than 60,000 people is part of the trend of new infections surging across rural America. And this is a big deal because these areas are already short of resources, and they were before the pandemic, and they're going to struggle, not just to track new cases, but to manage them with the infrastructure that remains. They don't have ventilators and ICUs in many cases. Adding to the disparity in healthcare support, residents in places like Mississippi, Florida, and South Carolina are living under minor to moderate restrictions, even as their average daily infection rate rises. As of this morning, at least 109,507 of our fellow Americans have succumbed to COVID-19, and we are probably going to pass 2 million confirmed infections later today. Arizona's state health directors urging all hospitals to fully activate their emergency plans as infections climb out west. Hospitals are being asked to prepare for crisis care and to, again, suspend elective surgeries if they're experiencing staff shortages or bed shortages. Arizona's largest health system, Banner Health, says ICU bed occupancy is growing and that if current trends continue, they will soon exceed capacity. And we're learning that the seafood industry has become the new source of major outbreaks in the Pacific Northwest. Infections have been found among seafood workers who traveled to a remote island community off of Alaska. In Newport, Oregon, Pacific Seafood said on Sunday that 124 workers across five of its facilities tested positive, with most of the infections concentrated in a shrimp processing plant. And the Navy revealed yesterday that six in 10 sailors aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt, that aircraft carrier that became a hotspot, have tested positive for coronavirus antibodies. Unfortunately, we still don't know if having antibodies protects you from getting the virus again. But what it shows is just how pervasive the outbreak was earlier this spring. And yesterday, the D.C. region reported just over a thousand new cases. The good news is that the rate of positive tests continues to fall here. But local officials say they're watching closely and they're quite concerned for a resurgence after the protests, which continued last night for the 11th straight day. Meanwhile, President Trump's campaign announced yesterday that he will begin holding what they're calling Keep America Great rallies again in the next two weeks. Originally, campaign manager Brad Parscale had said that the rallies wouldn't resume until late summer, but Trump has been getting antsy and he's determined to hit the stump again as he slips in the polls. Number two, speaking of President Trump, under a policy being finalized today by the Trump administration, hunters will be allowed to venture into national parks in Alaska and engage in practices that conservation groups say are reprehensible, including baiting hibernating bears from their dens with donuts to kill them and also using artificial light like headlamps to scurry into wolf dens to slaughter mothers and their pups. In a final rule that will be published today in the Federal Register, the Trump administration will end a five-year-old ban on these practices. Trump's new rule will also allow people to shoot swimming caribou from a boat as well as to target animals from airplanes and snowmobiles. It will take effect 30 days after being published. Teresa Pierno, the president of the National Parks Conservation Association, says parks like Denali, Katmai, and Gates of the Arctic exist so that folks can travel from around the world to see these beautiful animals alive in their natural habitat. Teresa says shooting hibernating mama and baby bears is not the conservation legacy that our national parks are meant to preserve. It's also not sportsmanship, she says. Number three, the United States officially fell into a recession back in February, ending a historic 128-month expansion before the coronavirus swept the country and put the economy into a tailspin. The National Bureau of Economic Research said the economy peaked before the pandemic forced businesses and social activity into a holding pattern Recessions often refer to two consecutive quarters of contraction, but the government's calculus also includes other factors like domestic production and employment. States and communities began issuing stay-at-home orders in mid-March, and a new study published yesterday found that these moves prevented an estimated 60 million coronavirus infections in the U.S. Obviously, though, that came at a great great cost to our economy. More than 40 million Americans lost their jobs. Well-known brands like J. Crew, Neiman Marcus, and Hertz have all gone into bankruptcy. And though the nation's unemployment rate dropped officially to 13.3% in May versus 14.7% in April, that reading comes with a big asterisk. The Bureau of Labor Statistics says that it misclassified data in May, April, and March. Without those errors, the agency says the unemployment rate really would have been 16.3% for May, and 19.7% for April. Government officials and economists are offering all sorts of different timelines and projections for when the economy might rebound. Depending on who you talk to, they say that it's going to be a W, a V, or a U shaped recovery that will start to unfold later this year. But a new report from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office warns that the economic consequences of the coronavirus will ultimately exceed $8 trillion. And the CBO suggests that the American economy will not fully recover from the pandemic until 2030. You heard that right, 2030. The CBO also expects unemployment to hover above 10% into 2021, meaning that our nation could still have joblessness worse than the depths of the Great Recession for many months to come. With that, I want to wrap up today with a silver lining. Last night I was on the phone with a criminal justice expert for a story I'm working on when suddenly a brass band started performing on the sidewalk right outside my house. It turned out one of my neighbors had hired the group to throw a surprise concert for the block. We all kept socially distant, of course, but it occurred to me as I applauded the wonderful performance that I hadn't clapped my hands for anything since early March, and it felt good to clap. The band performed, Things Are Going to Get Easier. It was an uplifting reminder that while there are certainly some very dark days ahead, we will persevere. We will clap again, and eventually we will turn the page to the next chapter in our nation's story. Things are going to get easier. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, June 9th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.